If you have a Bible with you, would you open to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. We've been in a study of these five verses for the last few weeks, and we'll wrap it up next Sunday morning. But John chapter 1, verse 1. I'm also going to have Terry put this up on the screen for you. So if you don't have a Bible, everyone will be able to see it for yourself. This is John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Those are powerful words at Christmas time. Those are powerful words any time. But at Christmas time, they seem to carry a special significance. I love how John wrote that so pointedly in his telling of the Christmas story. And that's really what that is. That is John's telling of the Christmas story. The circumstances and situations that surround us today seem to make this even more personal, makes it a little more applicable. It makes it seem as if this is something that was written 2,000 years ago that we would need to hear today. Because by all appearances, there is a darkness that is surrounding our entire world. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's just one statistic that helps illustrate that. The International Rescue Committee, that's who this comes from, writes, heading into 2023, this was one year ago about this time, heading into 2023, countries across the globe continue to struggle with decades-long conflicts and economic turmoil. The guardrails that once prevented such crisis from spiraling out of control, including peace treaties, humanitarian aid, and accountability for violations of international law, have been weakened or dismantled. The human and economic cost of these crises and disasters are not equally shared. The countries on the 2023 watch list are home to just 13% of the global population, yet they account for 90% of people in humanitarian need and 81% of the people who have been forcibly displaced. Now, a lot of times, because we live in the United States of America, we hear something like that and we think, that's happening in far-off, distant lands. And certainly, we have responsibility to help with these crises, and we have responsibility to intervene, and we want to make sure that we do that in the, the best of ways, but it doesn't really touch us. These types of crises that are being talked about by the International Rescue Committee really are not applicable to us. Well, maybe we need to see some other statistics that will help shift that focus so that we recognize that we are touched by things like this. So an article from Forbes magazine can help with that. Here we go. They say this is written in September of this year. This year is already the worst year on record for billion-dollar climate disasters in the United States. There have been 23 separate weather or climate disasters in 2023 so far that have caused at least $1 billion in estimated damages. In total, the events caused the deaths of 253 people and costs exceed $57.6 billion. 
Now we hear things like $57.6 billion, and that's so huge that again, it's not really personal to us. But there are still some other statistics that will make it so. There is an economist at MIT that has gained a lot of traction in just the past probably five months from an article that he wrote that turned into a book that a lot of different people in the realms of economics and science and and cultural development and anthropology are paying a lot of attention to. Because in his article and then his book, he postulates that the United States has been downgraded globally to nothing more than a developing country. Listen to what he says. America is regressing to have the economic and political structure of a developing nation. An MIT economist, an MIT economist has warned. Peter Timmons says the world's largest economy has roads and bridges that look more like those in Thailand and Venezuela than those in parts of Europe. The economist describes a two-track economy with, on the one hand, 20% of the population that is educated and enjoys good jobs and supportive social networks. On the other hand, the remaining 80%, he said, are part of the U.S.'s low-wage sector where the world of possibility has shrunk and people are burdened with debts and anxious about job security. He goes on in his most recent writings, and this is included in his book, to say that the social structures of major metropolitan areas in the United States, like Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, Chicago, Atlanta, and the likes, are such that you are safer in many third world developing countries than you are in the major metropolitan areas of the United States. Thus requiring us to think about this downgrading of the U.S.'s standing globally. We are little more than a developing country based on these rapid declines in the United States. It appears that it is a dark time, not just in far off distant lands, but right here at home. It is a dark time. And that's overwhelming to a lot of folks. In fact, to many people, the thought of that type of darkness has them wondering if there is any hope, if there is any way to return from these types of things, or if all hope is gone and everything is lost. That is a prevailing mindset globally. And in the midst of that type of dark thinking, that type of tangible darkness, we need to listen to what John wrote in John chapter 1 really pay attention to it. So let's take a look one more time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Listen to this part. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome. Even in the midst of darkness that surrounds us, be that personally or as a community or nationally or globally, whatever it is, we need to pay attention to this last line. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That is great news, folks. That is great news.
Let's read it in, in kind of a personal way. Jesus shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. Amen? Even in the midst of darkness, we hold on to that truth. And when we do, hope is fanned into flame within us. I want to show you a passage in Scripture that illustrates this beautifully. It is a perfect example of light overcoming darkness. Now this is where you may find yourself in a position that you want to bow up against me. You hang with me through this. Now, I do want to give credit to the person that got my mind thinking this way. His name is Ron Carpenter. Ron was somebody I was just studying this week and ended up going down a rabbit hole with him. And then I had to climb my way back out, and then I went back down again. And I took some other folks with me and said, hey, I want you to spend some time down here with me as I am working my way through this. And at the end of it, I found myself saying, I really like what he has to say. So with that said, really dial in with me and push back any distractions that might be coming to rest on you because I want you to listen close. So you hopefully have your Bible open to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Keep it there. But then let's go to Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the chair racks in front of you, maybe beside you or behind you. Really encourage you to get a Bible in your hands so that you can see this. If you're using electronic Bibles, that's fine as well. These two passages go hand in hand very well. This is Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. While he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. They cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of of God. Now, Ron Carpenter would teach that this passage illustrates exactly what John was trying to get across in John chapter 1. But first, you have to understand a little bit of context and a little bit of background so that you really get this soaking in. And then you can bring out what you need to bring out from the entire passage. So here's the context. Herod the Tetrarch had just ordered the execution of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. He was the one who would announce the coming Messiah. They were relatively close because of blood. They were family. John was the one who would lead the way for the coming Messiah. And he just lost his head under this vicious ruler. 
Word had come to Jesus that that had happened. And Jesus was retreating into the wilderness so that he could grieve. Remember, Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So all of the emotions that we experience, Jesus experienced. John had just died a heinous death. So Jesus was retreating into the wilderness to be alone and grieve the loss of his family member. However, that grief was quickly interrupted by 5,000 people. Now, sometimes we get bothered when we are retreating to try and be alone, and one person interrupts that aloneness. 5,000 people interrupted Jesus' grief. Now, Jesus, because he was both fully man and fully God, set aside his grief and took care of their needs. I'm sure you remember the story. He fed them, he taught them, and then he fed them fish sandwiches for everybody. And there were a lot of leftovers. He took care of every need for them, both spiritual and physical. At the end of a really long day, the grief was still there. And so Jesus needed to be alone. That was his original purpose. So now he had dismissed the crowds. The 5,000 people plus were gone, but he still had 12 with him. So to those 12, he said, I need a minute. Why don't you guys get in a boat and head across the sea? I'll catch up with you. Now, they've spent enough time with Jesus to know that when he says, I'll catch up with you, he would. So he put them in a boat and he sent them across the Sea of Galilee. And he retreated to be alone. And then in the fourth watch of the night, and this is incredibly important, in the fourth watch of the night, he went to them. Fourth watch of the night is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's very dark, very dark. He went and found them. That's the context for what we just read about Peter walking on the water. Now, in the midst of the context, you find some other emotions, this time from the disciples. They were terrified. Out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the dark, the wind picks up and the waves pick up. They were already scared. And then they see Jesus, and they became terrified. And then everything became peaceful, especially for Peter. When he got out of the boat and he walked towards Jesus, he found some peace, as did everybody else in the boat. So now, with the context in mind, let's bring together John chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 14. And all we have to do is use one word to see it. One word. This is it. Come. Just one word. Do you remember that? You remember seeing that in the midst of this passage? Here it is again, verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. One word changed everything for Peter. Now, this is the part of the message where you may very well be tempted to bow up against what I am about to say. This is the part where you may disagree with me. So I want to ask you, just be patient enough to let it soak in. Hang with me all the way through this before you say, Phil has lost his ever-loving mind. Here we go. 
What if I were to say to you that Peter did not walk on water? Peter did not walk on water. Now, if you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 14, you're looking at that saying, what? Peter didn't walk on water. Matthew specifically wrote it down that he did not, or that he did walk on water. So how can you say he didn't? Well, I would offer to you this. It is physically, in the natural world, impossible for someone to walk on water. It is impossible. Unless water is frozen, it cannot be done. Prior to Jesus, no one had ever walked on water. And after Jesus, no one has ever walked on water. Unless the water is frozen, in the natural created world, it cannot be done. So I want to continue to let that soak for you for just a second. Peter didn't walk on water because it's impossible to walk on water. So just let it soak in for a second. Some of you, you look angry. So just hang with me. Here's what Carpenter puts forward. He didn't walk on water. He walked on a word. He walked on a word. One word. This word. Now some of the really intriguing things in the midst of Scripture, if you pay attention to it, help you see that illustrated even more. Like go back into your Bible and pay very close attention to how that word is written. Come. He said, come. It's capitalized. The word come is capitalized in the middle of a sentence. In the middle of a sentence. So certainly it is a command, no question about that. There is no question that the word come is authoritative. But here's one of the the things that help us see the authority of the word. When Jesus spoke the word come, the natural world changed. He changed the physical world with one word. Making it then possible for Peter to step out of the boat and walk towards him because of what he heard and where he placed his faith and his hope. It was in the word. When Jesus said, come, all rules were gone. The physical rules, the natural rules, they were gone. And Peter could now walk out to Jesus, not on the water, but on the word on the word now that's kind of intriguing thinking he walked on the word not on the water it required the authority of Jesus to make it possible now what does John say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God Jesus is the word he is the word and he has been from the very beginning And if we stop and study Scripture and we look close enough, what we will discover is that over and over and over and over again, Jesus changes the natural world with a word. He was sleeping in the front of a boat with these same disciples when a storm was raging. And they woke him up. Once again, they were terrified by what was happening in the natural world. They woke him up, and with a word, Jesus put an end to it. He said, be still. He said, be still. You'll find example after example of that. Lazarus was dead and in the tomb when Jesus looked at the tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. 
And in that moment, with a word, Jesus changed the course of natural events. He changed the physical world. With a word, Jesus does the impossible. He makes the impossible possible with a word. When he hung on the cross, the last words from Jesus' mouth were, It is finished. And the atonement was taken care of. And with a word, he announced it. And at the end of time, as we know it, during a battle that has been titled the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus will put an end to it with a word. With a word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. John goes on to help us understand the power of that over the natural world. Do you remember this? Listen again to what he says. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. With a word, Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. When Peter got out of the boat, he got out trusting the word. He got out trusting the word. Why is it that he sank? Did you catch it in Matthew 24? Because he looked around. Because he looked around. He saw the wind and he saw the waves. Took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink. We have often put more significance on the fact that Peter was looking at Jesus and that's what got him out into the water, walking on the water, when really what he was doing was listening to Jesus. It was his eyes that caused the distraction. That's what caused it. And he began to sink because he started to look around and see all these other things and he quit focusing on the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, it's interesting that John would help us understand The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. By saying that, he reminds us that we have an enemy. We have an enemy that seeks to distract us. John, in chapter 8, verse 44, would make this statement. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So he tries to distort the word. He tries to distort what we hear from the Lord. He tries to distort the truth of Jesus. He's a liar and has been from the beginning. And by character, he's a murderer seeking your life. That's who he is. So he tries to distort the word, but he's not very good at it. So in my experience, our enemy, the devil, does his best work in what is seen. That's where his distractions are really impactful in our life. If he can distract us from what we hear from the Lord by forcing us to look at what we see around us, he can get us to a place where we start to sink and we get overcome. Not only is it my experience that he does his best work in what is seen, but he does his best work in the dark. Paul 
speaks of that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Listen to what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a very real battle, and it is in the visual realm. But Satan needs darkness in order to accomplish what he is doing. John Milton referred to him as the prince of darkness. And we are fully aware of the fact that that's where he works the most and where he is most powerful. It's in the darkness. And the reason that he does that in the darkness is because Jesus is light and light illuminates truth and allows us to see things. So Satan, knowing that, chooses to operate within the dark realm. But when Jesus came, He was the light of the world, and he began to shine, and the light overcame darkness. Jesus overcame darkness, and he does it with a word, with a word. He is able to accomplish that. Ron Carpenter makes this statement in his teaching. We have an enemy that seeks to create circumstances around us that challenge the faith inside us. So we hear something from the Lord and faith begins to grow inside us. We hear something from the Lord and and we begin to follow what we have heard from Him. And we do that with great enthusiasm. But then we have an enemy that seeks to create circumstances around us that will challenge that. We have an enemy that tries to challenge our thinking, to challenge our faith, to challenge our actions that will try to get us to a place that we are so distracted that we can no longer hear the word of God. We can no longer listen to Jesus. So Carpenter goes on to say this. That's why it's so important that you let the word of God create an image of faith inside you that is the reality you see so that you can face and overcome every enemy and every trial in your life. And we do that by trusting the word, by listening to the word. That's why Jesus came. I like how Paul actually illustrates this point. This is Acts chapter 26, starting in verse 12. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. It was the purpose of the Apostle Paul to bring light into the midst of darkness. That was the commission that God gave him. And in the midst of that commission, it was really simple marching orders. Just tell people about me. Show people who I am, Jesus said, so that they can hear my voice, so that they can listen to what I have to say, and faith can begin to grow. You want to know the significance of faith growing in us based on the word then pay attention to what Hebrews chapter 11 says about faith. This is it. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is not built on the things that we see around us, but rather it is built on what we hear. It is based on what we hear. It's based on the Word. And when our faith really understands the Word, understands Jesus, this makes sense. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I don't know what darkness might be overcoming you right now. Maybe that's in your marriage. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in finances. Maybe it's a family relationship. Maybe it's a friend relationship. Maybe it's just the daunting overwhelmingness of things happening in culture and society, both here and abroad. But if there is a darkness that is settling over you, I want to encourage you to close your eyes and listen and develop a faith that cannot be overcome by darkness. It's a faith that trusts the Lord and it's a faith that allows you to hear and to see light. And then when you open your eyes, what you will see is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You will find great news. And that's the message of Christmas. No matter how dark it is, Jesus has come. The light has come. Listen for the light. Isn't that kind of an oxymoron? Listen for the light. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. John, building on that very thought, in the first letter that he wrote, book of 1 John, chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now listen, here's a Christmas story for you. John's telling of the Christmas story is so wonderfully unique that he tells it all the time. Listen to this Christmas story. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The light is shining in the world. And darkness has not overcome it because of Jesus. So listen for the light. Listen for the word and stand on it. And if you're in the midst of a situation where darkness is all around you, then let me challenge you to shape your prayers this way during the Christmas season. Lord, speak into this situation. Speak into this situation. And then you listen for his voice. And you may watch the darkness lift even with your eyes closed, as you listen for the Lord. If you need people to pray with you about that, we have folks that will be available right after the service. They'd love to do that, to ask the Lord to speak into whatever darkness might be coming to rest on you or around you. They'll ask the Lord to do it, and it can help grow your faith. Once you stand, we'll pray together. Father in heaven, I 
So grateful for John's teaching. Grateful, Lord, that your spirit gave it to him for us. Help us pay attention. Lord, help us pay attention. I pray that forever we will see the connection from Matthew 14 to John chapter 1. And I pray as we thumb through our Bibles, every time we stumble across either of those passages, our mind will go to the other so that we can see how it works. We can be challenged in our thinking, but more than that, we can be challenged in our living and in our hearing. And so, Father, I pray that you will help us listen closely to you, the Word. And I pray that as we do, the darkness will lift and we will no longer be overcome, but rather we will stand on solid ground with you. Right now I'm praying for people that need to know you in such a way that they can trust you. Lord, would you let that happen this morning? And as we celebrate Christmas, would you help us lift you high, first in our own lives and then to those around us? In Jesus' name, amen.